Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Cold Star Technologies. I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization. Or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. So I'm interested in talking to people who are at the center of decision making, who understand what it takes, who not necessarily always have the ear of those in power, but uh, who understand what it's like. You know, and uh, I learn a lot from folks like today's guest, Doug Lavero. Doug has a master's degree in, uh, I believe, two actually, physics and poli-sci and an MBA. Gotta watch out for those guys with the MBAs. They they know uh, (laughs) business works. He's the president of Lavero Consulting, but you probably know him as the past associate administrator for human exploration and operations at NASA. Uh, He was a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for Space Policy. He's a retired Colonel of U.S. Air Force. 30 years. 30 years, Sarah. He's all the way up to something called the Executive Director and Deputy Program Executive Officer for Space at the Space and Missile Systems Center. That's a lot of nouns at the Air Force Space Command. all the Air Force base systems were, uh, you know, his domain. Uh, today's uh, board of advisors, member of several organizations, ExoAnalytic. You can see our interview with Clint Clark to find out more about ExoAnalytic. Uh, Hawkeye 360, of course, and it's Cis Lunar Space Development Company, and the National Security Space Association, which we're going to talk about in uh, in our discussion here. Doug, welcome. So let's begin with the geopolitics question. Uh, How serious is the rivalry with China in space regarding capabilities and national security? Uh, Jason, that's a uh, it's a great question, and and there's a lot of layers to that question, right? It's not it's not just a an an easy thing to answer. Uh, You know, let's talk about what is what does competition uh, with China mean? Uh, What is it? uh, How does it affect us? You know, there's a competition going on between us and China about who's going to get to the moon first next uh, they they seem to forget sometimes that we got there 50 60 years ago but um but the, who's going to get there first the next time um and um and you know we see uh, right now there's a you know a chinese um, probe around mars uh, that was launched just about the same time as our um uh, perseverance probe uh, obviously we landed on the surface before then so there's this friendly competition which is a competition uh for for glamour in space i'll call it glamour in space right it's who who has the best technology who can do the best kind of stuff i find that kind of competition quite frankly to be healthy for societies i think it's great that societies are trying to move forward um hopefully we move forward together but then there's this other the other side the underside belly of competition right which is the hey you know we use space to support our national security China knows we use space to support our national security. And there's a competition within China to say, can we use it better? Can they use space better to support their national security? And even more dangerous, um, can they go ahead and take away the US advantage in using space for our national security? And that's a, there's a real competition there. Uh, It's not a competition 
um, where we are comparing notes on a daily basis or we can point to this probe or this uh, mission and say it, this is a long-term competition. This is a competition of when, when the, this question becomes pertinent, which will be during a war that none of us ever want to have happen, um, that will be the only time we'll be able to tell how the competition has really come together. Mm. Meanwhile, we are competing against who thinks they have the best, who thinks they can do the best. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but it is the case and it has been the case uh, for years and years and decades and centuries amongst armies of the worlds, navies of the worlds, air forces of the worlds, and now space forces of the world. Right, right. So yes, we may never find out. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, exactly. I hope we uh, exactly. I yeah. hope I hope we never have to find the answer to this question. Okay, I go back to the the Cold War with the United States and the USSR. You know, the policy of containment. We're going to kind of starve them out economically, and it's going to take a long time, and and then they'll collapse and that. Um, there, there is a theory uh, among some geopolitical folks and historians in that, that uh, America caused a lot of that antagonism uh, by getting in the face of the Soviets and, and staying there, mm -hmm. you know, being belligerent, etc. Is there any lesson for you to be taken away from that Cold War rivalry? Uh, for example, if, if we were interested a little more in uh, possible cooperation with China than we were with the USSR, do you think that's going to make any difference at all? Yeah, you know, um, this is a really deep uh, geopolitical question, uh, Jason. This is uh, this is uh, one of those things where we need to go to the Harvard uh, Kennedy School and ask the um, the China experts there this question. Here, here's an interesting, here's an interesting, um, you know, view of this. My what I would cons consider um, informed but not learned historical view of the world. Okay. Um, there's only ever really one country that is the biggest or most powerful or richest country in the world at any one time. Um, and everybody else wants to be that country. Um, and whether that's the Rome, Rome and, and during the Roman Empire or uh, uh, England uh, during um, the 1800s or what, you know, what Germany wanted to be or, uh, you know, there's this and Paul, Paul Kennedy wrote a, a, a very good book on this called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations. You may be familiar with the book. Um, actually attributing a lot of the rise and fall to financial systems and how secure the financial systems are. But it's, but it's more than that. It's a body of laws. It's, a, it's raw materials. It's knowledge. It's education. It's a whole bunch of things that contribute to that. China is a competitor with the United States because we are both near the top of that, of that um, uh, fight. And we, um, and we compete for um, dollars, resources, um, uh, world attention, world, um, world influence. We compete for all of those things. Um, that's not exactly the same as it was during the Cold War. And the Cold War was a little bit different. We had what we viewed as a hostile nation that wanted to rule other nations, whether we were right or wrong, it doesn't really matter, but that what our view was, we, we had a hostile nations that wanted to take, that wanted to aggressively take over other nations and we felt like we needed to contain them. Um, if you look during the Cold War, we didn't have 
huge economic interaction with um, the Soviet Union. In fact, we had almost none. In fact, we prevented it, right? We, I mean, you were either, you either dealt with the Soviet Union or you dealt with the US, but you didn't deal with both at the same time. All the client nations around the world had to make a choice. That's not at all what we see in the China example, right? I mean, we have, we have more economic um, interaction with China than with just about any other nation in the world other than Canada, your home, your hometown, as we found that earlier, um, and Mexico. Those are our biggest trading partners, actually, Canada and Mexico. But otherwise, China is the biggest trading partner. Um, and, uh, and we compete for world markets. We compete for world resources. So the dynamics of this competition are very different the dynamics of the Cold War competition, which is one reason, for example, you do not see the US necessarily exercising a strategy of containment. Mm -hmm. And we could, we could argue whether the strategy of containment for the Soviet Union was right or wrong, um, but, um, but regardless, we're not exercising that strategy. And in fact, we're kind of still looking for what the right strategy is mm -hmm. to deal with China. Um, and I'm not sure that we, I'm not sure we've hit it yet. Right. Right. It's interesting. If you go back in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine, they have a great website. I'm a subscriber. You can go back uh, to the 30s and look at articles <laughs> there. Right. And if we were to go back to 1989, the Soviet Union's still around. And there are plenty of articles on uh, by American writers, policy writers. We've got to bolster China. We've got to transfer technology. And, uh, and that's kind of turned into a, a China yanking the technology in. Because uh, yeah, you got yeah. to, if you do business with them, you've got to transfer the tech now. Um, so I re and there's a lot of uh, comparison between Britain and Germany around 1900, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. With, uh, with yep. China and America, yep. who were also great trading partners and didn't, at least up to 1914, didn't hate each other. Right. Uh, they they right. were going to each other's naval bases and partying and having a good time and that. And then suddenly this sort of unexpected thing happened. I wonder... Uh, kind of a difference between the, the Germans and the British and the Americans and the Chinese is the potential difference in values. I feel that there's a lot more similarity in values in the first pair than the second here. Is it, you know, and the um, America and the Obama administration had trouble with this with Russia, right? They, they, mm -hmm. they, they thought, um, it's just a misunderstanding. We'll reach out. Oh, the values aren't quite compatible here. It's hard to do business with these guys, right? Do you think that there is common ground to be found on the values between China and the U.S.? You know, it's, um, it, it's a very interesting uh, topic. Um, uh, the um, we we sitting outside of Europe look at the UK and Germany and we f and we say well they're both Western European countries they must mm -hmm. they must share values, um, but if you know a lot of folks from the UK and a lot of folks from Germany they're all fine people but they don't always have the same outlook on life right and outlook on life is what determines values I don't want to say they don't share values because obviously they do these days um, the, 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 at the base at the most base level. At the most base level, human beings' values come from survival instincts, needs of the family, um, economic security, those kind of things. That's where our values come from. Then our philosophical um, thinking um, uh, sends us down different paths about what's the best way to secure those values. Um, in, in our Western European philosophy, um, the writings of Locke and all of um, all of the Western scholars, uh, we, bet we felt liberty and democracy and freedom and, uh, and, a, and a economic system known as capitalism, although I always try to remind people that capitalism was invented after the United States became a country, not before. It was mercantilism before that. Um, uh, so all of, all of those things shaped the direction that the U.S. and the Western um, Western powers took in trying to build that those basic 
hierarchies of needs. The Chinese have a different philosophical um, background, but they're not chasing different needs. They're chasing the same needs with a different philosophical outlook. And, you know, um, uh, Xi, uh, whether you whether you agree with his conclusions or not, has concluded um, that um, the way China is attacking that uh, with a more autocratic, centrally controlled, um, unitary approach is the superior way. Um, it, it's not that he 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 is he is in my mind, in my estimation, untutored estimation, um, uh, very sincere that he believes that's a better way for China and for the Chinese people, and he's trying to make you know so. I don't find if we're not incompatible at the foundation of what we're trying to achieve, it seems like we should be able to find some elements of agreement um, in the means um, methods. And that's the real question. Where can we agree on the means? Because we all agree on the on the goals. But where can we agree on the means? Right. Right. I, I would love to be part of a negotiating team. <laughs> if anybody's listening, <laughs> the policy of that, I'd love to be in there and discussing this because, uh, yeah, the perspectives are fascinating, right? Do you believe in private property and exit or mm -hmm. do you believe uh, in, in strong central planning? Exactly. Um, yep. And, and it, yeah, there's a lot of cases to be made. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. You say, is China as aggressive as the Soviet Union was? Well, they are uh, putting in trading posts and then militarizing those things. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, and from their perspective, they probably feel they have to in order to survive. Right. right. And right. They don't right. have any choice. So, mm -hmm. And it is amazing. Uh, the operations management guy in me is uh, astonished at the speed at which they can build some of these facilities, bridges, houses, you know, structures. Right. They just there it is within a few days, right? <laughs> it, there's a lot of capability there. So that is fascinating. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing with me some of the, the beliefs and, and observations that you have. Um, that's that's absolute fun for me to, to talk about that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Let, let's um, go into something I've been banging the drum on for like two years now, make space boring, right? Make the commercial side of space uh, not dull and uninteresting, but uh, normalized, right? Where investors are not afraid to put money in. They know they're going to get an ROI. There's a known customer base for this stuff and uh, and we just do it. And so and then the fun begins to be uh, what what apps or software or you know that level of things can we uh, can we come up with. So part of your messaging uh, when we first talked anyway was uh, quote and I'm looking at my uh, screen here to make sure I get this right to advocate for greater use of commercial capabilities and manufacturing for future DoD space and launch missions. Okay. Yeah. Tell us more about what that means to you. Well, let me um, let me tell you a little bit about uh, strategically about why that why I believe that is, um, and and then what it means, and then I'll answer the what it means to me. So you know when I was when I first entered the job um, in the Pentagon uh, to be the deputy for space policy, the deputy secretary for, for space policy, um, I, I actually went to that job because there was a notion within the DoD. Uh, that um, space was under attack, um, it was vulnerable, it couldn't be depended upon, um, we couldn't compete with the Chinese specifically, and we should in fact uh, get out of space and uh, rely on um, the normal, the three um, historical terrestrial domains to do our work. And and, I, and as a space advocate and a space knowledgeable individ individual, I found that to be a, a, a poorly structured message and one that was based upon a lot of misunderstanding. But the one thing that 
that was um, true in all of that um, was the fact of the matter is that the Chinese were um, able to go ahead and match us technologically in space over the long run, not at that time, but we could see the trajectory that they, and they could match us um, financially in terms of the amount of money they would invest in it. Uh, we, we could not match over the long run again, um, that kind of thing. And so I started to think about how is it that we will go ahead and stay ahead in, in this chosen area of space that I, that I work in. Um, and I tried to look for what are the natural advantages that the U.S. brings to the table. Um, and it goes back a little bit to our those philosophical views we talked about um, just a couple of minutes ago. The natural advantages that the U.S. brings to the table are twofold, two that no nation in the world has ever matched um, the U.S. in. Um, one is in our entrepreneurial spirit. We have an entrepreneurial spirit and capability within the U.S unmatched in history or and and currently around the world and we have an ability a um a, a spirit in the united states of forming alliances the united states has more alliances than any nation in the history of the world now somebody could say well the roman empire had a lot of alliances yeah but they kind of attacked their way into alliances you know <laughs> so, so um so we have so these are two natural strengths and it was my belief um that if we were going to stay ahead of China and continue to go ahead and be able to depend upon space for our national security needs, we needed to harness those two strengths. Now I'll put aside the allied part of that because that's a different, a different discussion uh, than the one that you asked me about. So right away that discussion leads into, okay, if entrepreneurial spirit is a critical element of us staying ahead of the Chinese, then that means I need to not only harness commercial space, I need to encourage commercial space. And the way to harness and encourage commercial space is to invest in them more, to use, to invite them into the family of um, systems that we use, um, to go ahead and free export licensing so they can go ahead and be more productive, um, to go ahead and loosen rules on, on what kind of services we allow them to offer that used to not be allowed to offer. All of these things um, shaped a lot of the work that I did what I, while I was the um, DASI for space policy. And in fact, and one of those was, for example, on space traffic management. You know, we couldn't get all this entrepreneurial um, spirit in space if things were bumping into one another all the time in space. And so, so fixing that problem became important. So um, if, you, if, you, if you look at that, of that, at that question of how do you go ahead and enhance commercial capabilities and, and, and commercial um, contributions to national security. There's a whole bunch of elements of that that you have to go ahead and, and um, take care of. And once you do, then you can tap into the innovation, um, the agility, the flexibility, and quite frankly, for any business that's in this commercially to make a profit, their ability to drive down costs over the long term to be more competitive in the industry. All of those forces are not forces that you find within a structured, disciplined DOD acquisition system. They're all the forces you find on the outside and you want those forces working for you. So that's the whole reason why you wanna reach out and attract all this commercial space um, capability. Okay. Now you're on the boards of several space companies. And so from your perspective, I'm curious what you believe commercial space companies need to figure out like what lesson do they need to most take to heart uh, that they're just missing most of the time you know that that's a there's probably not one answer for all commercial space companies right um uh because every commercial space company is is different um but you know for those for those companies that i work with and and the companies that i watch um a couple of a couple of things um 
number one, you can't create a product that nobody wants. Uh, I, I, I saw that a lot in the commercial space business. Um, you know, I think we have right now um, somewhere upwards of 140 launch companies um, in the in the United States. Um, we don't even launch 140 satellites in a year. I mean, and that's not not including um, you know satellites like Starlink satellites, which we launch 140 every two months. Um, but in terms of separate launches, in terms of separate launches, we don't have 140 launches. Um, in a year, and it's unlikely that, that we're ever going to, right? So there's a bunch of companies out there who are have a business plan that doesn't close for reasons like that. Um, that was the case for a lot of remote sensing companies as well. There, there was They believed there was this magic um, formula they would come up with to go ahead and make money off of remote sensing when um, the industry, and, and not deal with the government, uh, when the industry had not found that um, that to be the case for 20 years. Um, and so I, I, I try to, number one, advise these companies on how to be realistic about what are, what are the markets, where are they. Um, you know, you do, you do want, as a startup company, you would love to have some government interest and investment. Not only does that provide um, an income stream that's more reliable than some other income streams, um, but it also provides bona fides to you when you go out in the market um, to the commercial market. If the government is your customer, well, then obviously you have it it may not be a good housekeeping seal of approval but it's a dod housekeeping seal of approval at least or a national security um so so you know uh, i found a lot of folks um and i think this was routine in commercial space a lot of folks who said they'll never deal with the government who three or four years later after not being able to come up with any revenue said hey yeah, that government customer looks pretty good and it's like yeah well would have been better if you'd started in that position because now you've headed down a path which you're going to have to veer from in order to attract that um, that customer you've seen this happen for example on several companies i won't name them here that have had large foreign investments and then have had to go ahead and divest those foreign investments in order to deal with the uh, with the US government, right? Um, so I, that's one of the things I try to tell folks is I said, do, do not ignore the, the government as one of your prime customers. While while I know there's a lot of money in space, the, 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 the buckets of money in space can really be divided into three pots. Pot number one is satellite communication for which there's $170 billion worth of money, most of it from the commercial world and go get it. Pot number two is $40 billion from the United States government that the United States government spends every year uh, from NASA and the DOD and the intelligence community, go get that money. And then there's a little trickle of everything else. <laughs> so if you only want to do the everything else, if you're not doing SATCOM and you're not going to deal with the DOD, you're left fighting with the other 200 companies over the everything else. That's not a good place to be. Okay, Doc. <laughs> well, I, I'm very interested in this and rolling it over in my mind because I've had my own frustrations with the commercial space industry over the last couple of years. Uh, and the thing that I like to go back to is uh, I, I'll be the first person to say maybe I'm wrong and uh, and maybe one of my premises is false. Mm -hmm. right? um, so what I just heard from you is leading me to wonder, <laughs> right, maybe there's if you're in that trickle area there, yeah, it's, you're going to have a tough time is, is probably the answer. And so maybe government um, is the place to go. I know talking with uh, Dr. Andy Aldrin quite a bit, uh, his, his theory, um, which I 
you know, the last time he and I talked, we recorded it and then came up right. with uh, an episode that we were talking about, something like this, where um, that spreading out of the risk, right? That the government can take the risk uh, on, a, on a startup like that. Maybe that's the right thing to do. So I've got some more mulling over to do about that, uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, I might no, come it's, around. I might come around. You know? <laughs> it, it's it's it is it's hard to accept. Um, hmm. You know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a time. Look, um, if you were Orville and Wilbur Wright, and it was 1905, hmm. who was your first customer? It was the U.S. Army. Yeah. Okay. The U.S. Army wrote the first contract for Orville and Wilbur Wright. Wilbur Wright. Okay. Now. That's not the customer of choice for most aircraft producers today. Today, it's United Airlines and American mm -hmm. Airlines, which is great. But we're still, we are we are at 1905 in the space industry. We are we are not in 1955. Mm -hmm. right. um, and and the customer is the one. The, the government is the one that's going to take those risks. Look, even a, a, a gentleman as wise as Elon Musk, who is a, an incredible entrepreneur and a fantastic inventor and just a such so insightful. He he did not refuse government money. He, in fact, began with government money and built his company on government money. And I applaud him for that. Um, that is um, that is I, I applaud the U.S. government for doing it. And I applaud Elon for being smart enough to go ahead and use it. Um, that's that's a natural thing. Now he's built a market where he, in theory, doesn't need the government anymore, although he still um, he still wants that government customer because it's a great anchor tenant. Right. Yes, uh, the government doesn't want to be the only customer. They don't want to be your only customer. This I've yep. heard over and over again over the yep. last couple of years. Uh, but they, I guess they should be in there. So, hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's transition to your role as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. Now, I love this stuff, but I'm a complete outsider to it, right? <laughs> so I want to hear. I want to hear all about. I mean, I'm the guy who goes and gets the book Nerve Center, which is a audio transcript uh, written down, right, of all these uh, interviews with former uh, chiefs of staff for the mm -hmm. for the president, led by James Baker, and that. I'm the kind of guy who really loves that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I want to see, like, how did they do it? What kind of problems did they have? What do they talk about all during day? What what really makes them mad, right? This kind of thing. So, uh, so I want to hear from from uh, for for us outsiders. <laughs> what did you do? What did a typical day look like? Obviously, I don't want you talking about things that uh, you know <laughs> are inside the security bubble. But right. uh, just you know, what what happened? What is it? What is it like? Do you do you have an office, a desk? Do you have staff? What what happens? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a great question. First of all, you need to know one rule in Washington. The longer the title, the less important the job, right? Uh -huh. You know, so the shortest title that you have in Washington is president, right? right. And one word, one word, pretty sure. You know. So <laughs> when you're the deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy, um, in theory, less important the job, but that's, uh, that, uh, that uh, does not answer your question really. So, um, so let me um, first, uh, couch this a little bit in in ridiculous wiring diagrams in the DoD, just so you can understand uh, where you sit. You know, you have the Secretary of Defense. Everybody understands he's a cabinet member. Under the Secretary of Defense is somebody who's the quote the Undersecretary for Policy. That's the person who sets the helps helps the Secretary set the policy for the United States. You know, if there's a question, are we going to get into Afghanistan or get out of Afghanistan? The Undersecretary for Policy would do would do that, right? Um, and then with it, under the Undersecretary, there are all these assistant secretaries and deputies that have specific places that they care about, whether it's Middle East or Far East Asia or whatever. 
Um, and I was the person who cared about space. I was the person who was in charge of space. In fact, I was the, really the single highest ranking person in the Pentagon whose only job was space. There were other people who were higher ranking that cared about space, but it wasn't their only job. Um, I was the only one who had a job that, uh, that cared about space. And in fact, it was my job to go ahead and set policy for the Department of Defense when it came to space. Now that's a really big question. What does policy mean? What does that really mean? Okay, um, so policy can be very simple things um, like, uh, do we wanna export a particular capability to a particular country? Is that in accordance with our policy? Is that something we wanna do? Policy can be big things. Hey, Doug, we have a, and I talked about this just a second ago, we, we have a, a long-term strategic competition with the Chinese. How do we set ourselves up to make sure that we um, go ahead and stay ahead in that competition? Um, and I told you already sort of my conclusions about that and how I tried to push the department. And then, and, and then there's, there's questions that happen on, you know, what are the how do the rules of law apply to space combat? And how should we think about those? And how should we structure those? Um, how do we build alliances? Those, I talked about allies before, but now how do you really build alliances when a lot of the stuff you have is classified and you can't share it with allies? How do you, and how do you, how much do you really want to rely on them? These are all policy questions. Policy is also dictated by what you spend. One of the, one of the, um, things that folks always say in the Pentagon is your policy is basically your budget. Um, and so moving the budget to go ahead and reflect those policy goals was a critical thing. The first thing, in fact, the first thing I had to do when I got to the Pentagon uh, was decide what was our policy going to be? How, how were we going to deal with this long-term combat? How were we going to go ahead and, um, and handle these questions I wrote a paper, a white paper uh, back then, which I, I can send you a link so you can share with Please the audience yeah. on on resilience and how do you create how do you create war fighting resilience in space because nobody could agree on that. Mm. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write a paper on that. And, and that became the official DOD paper on how do you do that. And then once you've written the paper and you've got it signed off and everybody agrees with it, okay, now what do we need to buy um, in order to go ahead and execute that policy of resilience right. that we just had, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to get involved in the, in the budget. Um, and then there's the questions of things that happen outside the DOD, but affect the DOD. Um, you and I, before we started the broadcast, talked a little bit about space traffic management, for example. Well, if I really want to go ahead and have proliferated constellations of LEO satellites that actually can meet national security needs, I can't do it if there's a bunch of garbage up there. So I better figure out how I'm going to track it and eventually how I'm going to clean it up. In fact, one of the things that I regret is that we haven't figured out yet what, what we, the U.S., are going to do in terms of cleaning up uh, garbage that we can talk about that later if you want. Um, and then, uh, and, and, you know, so all of these are policy questions, and it was my job to either answer the questions or more usually to figure out what the questions were and then answer the questions. Uh, and, of course, not alone. Nothing in the Pentagon happens alone. You have... Um, you have all of the um, all of the folks who work within the Pentagon who have a piece of space, not as their full time job, as their part time job, and you need to go ahead and have the discussions with them and figure out where they sit and um, come to either a compromise or a new way of thinking or, or whatever it is. Um, so all of those are the kinds of things you do every day. And and to answer your question, what do you do every day? Well, 
you got in your at your office, you looked at the 100 emails that have happened overnight and decided that you can't get any of them done. <laughs> the White House calls and said, hey, we need you over here for a meeting this afternoon, which happens more often than you want. And your entire calendar is blown out of the water. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and yes, we, I had what I had what I had going for me, the biggest thing I had going for me um, was I had a staff of the 17 of the sharpest mm. people you've ever seen who the only, their only care in the world was to get things done. Um, it, we, we, um, we were the drama-free office because our mm. folks were so busy. We didn't have time for uh, interpersonal dra drama because we had folks who really cared about getting things done. And, and I'm very proud of that team because they got, they got a lot of things done. Nice, nice. Well, I'd love to hear more about them maybe off camera. Yeah, absolutely. Linked up with a couple of them. That'd be really mm -hmm. neat. Um, I, I've really enjoyed meeting folks uh, in and out of the military, uh, folks who have, have retired and moved on to uh, defense contracting roles or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and as well as young people, because oh, they're yeah. going to be they're going to be the executives of tomorrow. A lot of them. Right. Uh, it's been it's been a, a great couple of years to learn about them. So yeah, there are two uh, there are two three stars in the Space Force right now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, General Bill Aquari and General uh, Salty Saltzman. Both of them were students of my wife at ROTC huh. uh, many, many years ago. So, uh, you know, it's so yes, these young these young kids do grow up and they need right. good mentors and they need good um, and, and they need a, a good sight picture on what's important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a good rifle <laughs> like there. Um, did you get into electronic warfare at all? Um, I have been uh, working in uh, space electronic warfare for many decades. Mm. Okay. I kind of figured like if I go up to the list of things that you were involved in with the Air Force Space Systems, I kind of thought maybe, because uh, I think back in space, you can't hide things, but you can disguise them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. You could change the energy and velocities and things like that maybe make them look like something else i go back um to something like the battle of jutland where you've got two fleets coming at each other and the technology level they've got to see each other is maybe an airplane or a zeppelin or something like that and the radios aren't that great they're they're signaling with flags the airplane pilot has to go back and report he can't just get on the radio and say anything like that right and so and then i, I transfer that to well wow what would a battle in space look like today right mm -hmm. um i was reading uh rv jones's um book the most secret war and mm -hmm. he brought up a concept that um one of the, the military folks that he was talking to and this is like england in the late 30s uh for our listeners he said the that this military guy told it was probably an admiral the problem of two ships uh coming to identify one another could never actually be solved mm -hmm. with a mm -hmm. signal or something because there might always be interference or a problem or something like that and i've been rolling that over in my head ever since mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, so you know it's it's kind of neat maybe we'll talk about that some other time um sure. Sure. about ew because i i saw a talk i listened to a, and watch a lot of presentations dole institute stuff um folks there was a uh, deputy secretary for electronic warfare uh 2016 who's mm -hmm. gone on to um private life and uh works for a, a corporation and i haven't mm -hmm. been able to get in touch with him which is too bad because i'd love to talk to him the speech he gave um from that perspective in in 2016 was that we were 20 years behind in electronic warfare mm -hmm, do you mm -hmm. feel that we've caught up at all um well, you know um so um where the rest of the world is in electronic warfare isn't my specialty um <laughs> yeah. uh, the u.s 
the U.S. has some pretty sophisticated electronic warfare mm -hmm. capabilities. I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I will comment. I will comment um, that I have an old friend, um, one of the best space engineers that I've ever worked with, um, and he always used to like to say uh, this very simple thing: there are two things that keep spacecraft in space: mm -hmm. gravity and and basically RF uh, energy communications. Um, without those two things, there is no space mission. Um, right. Gravity, we uh, uh, have never figured out how to how to go ahead and um, and turn off. So um, that one's not bad. So R so RF emissions is the uh, is the second piece of this, and it's critically important for every space right. station. Right. And anybody wanting to hear about the history of that should uh, go to YouTube and look for Steve Blank's Secret History of Silicon Valley. He's got um, <laughs> video presentations about it, and he's got uh, a multi-hundred slide PowerPoint. If you're interested, it's fascinating stuff about uh, microwave valley which became <laughs> silicon valley exactly um, again another thing uh, another area of, of interest that i just love learning more about okay i want to move to um maybe a kind of a what can listeners do kind of area here let's let's begin with um the the manned space flight role at nasa and and folks I connected with Doug uh, before he got the manned spaceflight job, and he was going to be a guest on the show early on. Like, he might have been my first 10 guests or something like that, and then couldn't do it. <laughs> so, you know, this is really uh, coming back full circle to that. Um, was there a biggest surprise in your experience there? Um, you know, um, I had... I had, of course, worked with NASA many times um, when I was in the in the DoD and in the National Reconnaissance Office and in the Pentagon. I obviously had many acquaintances uh, with NASA. I knew several NASA administrators, but obviously, I never worked inside NASA um, in the in the belly of that beast, right? Um, and um, and it was it was interesting. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, just an incredible organization, uh, as everybody kind of knows, NASA's mm -hmm. incredible organization. But but um, but. It was very much focused when, when I got there um, into the human explorations and operations um, organization, which I ran, um, it was more focused on the operational side mm -hmm. of, um, of how do you do space rather than I would call the research development and engineering side of how do you do space. Uh, and I was surprised at that. I was surprised mm -hmm. that they, in, in the DOD, we, we have separate organizations that do research and development mm -hmm. and then do operations and maintenance, right? right? They're two separate organizations and they have very different characters. And what had happened at NASA is because for so long they had moved away from development, the last major development they really did inside NASA was the space shuttle uh, back in the in the 80s um, and moved into operations. They had they had developed an operational mindset. Um, within NASA, which is uh, critically important, by the way, you know, if you, if you don't want people to die, you better have a good operational mindset. Okay. Um, but because of that, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> there you go. Um, but because of that, um, had sort of lost track of the how do you do really cutting edge research and development. Now, that, now, by the way, that's different than, you know, there's these, hmm. there's these tribes within NASA, right? There's the science mission directorate, which was, which was a peer directorate next to me, which all they did was development, right? They, every, their, every space mission they did was a one-off space mission. So they had, had innovators and scientists and everything else like there. The people who worked for me in human exploration operations were more of those operators. It's like, you know, let's launch this rocket tomorrow and we're going to launch that same rocket a month from now. And we're going to launch the same rocket a month from now. And we need to make sure that there's enough water on the space station, and all those mm -hmm. other kind of things. And we were now trying to take that organization 
which had developed that character really over the last 20 to 25 years of of being mostly operators and trying to change them back into a development organization. So I, what I found, and it isn't that they weren't capable of it, they were perfectly capable of it, but they were unpracticed in it. Um, and that was, and that to me was the biggest surprise to realize that um, we, the character of the organization had changed from this, this cutting edge development organization that we all believe NASA was to this more day-to-day -day operations organization um, and and I think that's actually a little bit um, that's that's a little bit of a regret um, from NASA is when they mix these two together when they mix the human explorations research and development work together with the operations work and they ended up with a more operational um, than research and development organization that really hampered their ability to innovate um, now it's made up for the fact that they can go to a lot of commercial space companies and ask for that innovation. But that's not the same thing as having your government workforce being the innovators and really doing the cutting edge stuff. That's a little bit, that's a different position to be in. Uh, so that was the big surprise. Right, right. Yeah, and you've got the space development agency, but that's creating weaponary type things, I would imagine. Correct. Um, I think though what you're saying is a sign of maturation of the of the NASA organization, I think you know most organizations go through that, right? They have that yep. initial, yeah, it's 1960. Let's figure some stuff out, you know. And then, right. all right, we're doing this, and we've got a, a flight heritage, you know, we've got it steady and performance, and now let's let's really get good at uh, what we do, operational excellence, right? The right, right. Side of things. So, okay, well, that's really cool. I'm glad we were able to cover that a little bit. Yeah. You're on the board of the National Security Space Association, and I had some fun clicking around in there and learning about it. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about uh, the goals, values, purpose of that thing, and how being a member could enhance, uh, well, not only the uh, the United States of America, but one's career? Sure. Um, so, you know, the, um, what, the way that the National Security Space Association got started was uh, myself and, and another gentleman who's just a fantastic uh, individual. Um, uh, named Steve Jakes. Um, he, we were, we were sitting um, before a conference one day and said, you know, we really need an organization that's devoted to national security space. We have the National Space Foundation, which, um, which does, which is a great foundation. And uh, don't get me wrong, they do a lot, but they're not devoted to just national security space. Um, they spend just as much time doing civil space and commercial space and all those other kind of things, and they're not focused on the national security customer. And you know, this kind of goes back to your question earlier about uh, you know where does commercial fit in and how do we how do we leverage it we felt like we needed to give industry a voice in national security space that they didn't have directly you had the national defense industrial association you had air force uh, or armed forces communication electronics association you had all these other associations which like my job and as being the DASI for space policy they did space part-time but they didn't do space full time, okay? Um, and we said, you know, we want an organization where companies can come together and can for the can focus specifically on the national security space market, and we can help we can help get them the information they need. They can help feed that information back to government. So, for example, we have at the NSSA we have a, a gentleman who runs our um, our studies and analysis uh, shop. Uh, called the Mormon Center after General um, Tom Mormon, who was just a great individual. 
um, uh, passed away recently. Um, but we write policy papers out of there, not to not to lobby Congress. We're not a lobbying organization, but just to write policy papers for the government, for folks to listen to. to um, we wrote a big policy paper on the existence of the Space Force before the Space Force uh, came into existence about what, how we, we believed as an association uh, we needed to have a Space Force. In fact, I think we were the only association that came out and said that. Um, and nobody else uh, would, would go ahead and do that. So there's, there are, there's a, a need for... A, we bet we believed there was a need for an organization where companies could come together um, get one-on-one -on -one conversations with space leaders we have a series of both unclassified and classified webinars uh, the classified ones do not happen over zoom they happen over the appropriate mechanisms um, where people can talk, talk directly to decision makers and and hear what they're thinking so we 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 provide a venue for companies to go ahead and interface with the government in a way that really doesn't exist elsewhere. That's really, that's really where it is. Now we're not an individual member organization. We don't we don't have individuals coming um, and joining the organization. It's it's companies and it's from from the big Lockheed Martins and Northrop Grumman's of the world to the smallest startup and everywhere in between um, to go ahead and get that access and advocacy um, that we think really could help the industry help the DoD. Okay, well, yeah. awesome. And, uh, and it's not a ridiculous fee either, especially as an individual. I had a look at that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. I'll link to that below, folks, in the, mm -hmm. in the description. All right. Well, let's finish up with this, Doug. Uh, for people new to space careers, so you're an engineer or something, and you're real excited, and you're about to graduate and that, what do you recommend that uh, they do to get started on uh, today to make the most out of their time and their impact? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, uh, I mentor a lot of students um, coming out of college to answer, help them answer exactly that question. Talk to one of them who works for me. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the first thing I actually ask them is what are their life goals and what are they and what do they want to do and what makes them excited, right? Because I'm a, a person who believes that if your job doesn't keep you excited, then you're not going to like your job. Um, so, so, so it's not certainly a one size fit all question, but here's, here's sort of the base, the basis uh, that I try to tell people. Um, number one, um, don't plot out your entire life course because you'll get it wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, don't try to do that. Go find some place where you will learn something new um, that you didn't learn in college that, and that you will get to exercise the skills you had in college um, against something that you enjoy. Go, go someplace like that. That might be a policy job. That might be an engineering job. That may be a business development job. That may be a financial Go. Go find someplace, but make sure wherever you go, it's stretching you. Some people, some people, when they enter the career field, they don't want to go ahead and enter a place where they think they do not have the skills to succeed. Well, let me tell everybody who's listening, coming out of college, you will never have the skills you need to succeed in any job in the workplace. You're going you're gonna to learn those skills on the job and, and find the job that stretches you, that forces you to learn. And apply yourself to it in at least enough time to actually get those skills. And when you, when you do that, and, and there's such a, what's so great today in space, there's, there's so many places to go, right? Maybe 40 years ago, there were only, you know, you had to go to two or three companies in the world and that was it, that's all you could do. Now there's so many places to go. You can go to the small startup over here, the, the entrepreneurial space company like SpaceX or, or Blue Origin over here, the, um, the tried but true Lockheed Martins and Northrop Grumman's and, and Boeing's of the world, right? There's so many places to go do this. Um, 
find the one that interests you, find the job that is going to stretch you the most, go attack that, um, put your all into it, learn from it, um, and then use that as the springboard for the next uh, for the next job. And what I always try to tell people, and I said this earlier, don't have that plan, don't have the map, but do have a goal, have a goal in mind. Okay, so if your goal is to go ahead and be um, the head of a space agency someday, make sure every decision you make kind of gets you closer to that goal, okay? If your goal is to be a millionaire one day, which is a great goal, by the way, um, make sure every step that you make takes you a little bit closer to that. Uh, if you have the goal as your guide star, you will make good decisions about your career throughout. If, if each time you make a career decision, it's only a comparison of the next job to the prior job, you're going to go ahead and just weave through life in a brownie in motion and never arrive at the place you want to be. So have a have a goal, a guide star, um, but don't be so focused on it that you have this plan mapped out that has to happen. Um, that's a hard thing to a hard thing to do, but that's sort of what I tell folks. Right. Wow. Yeah. That that is great stuff, and I hope people take it to heart. Uh, my first job out of college, I was in the power generation industry. I was an operations management and business administration graduate. You think I knew anything about power generation, industrial gas turbine generator sets, steam power plants? Exactly. <laughs> I did after a year. I walked exactly. into my office. I was a business development program creator. My boss showed me six empty binders on the shelves. They had like warranty, terms and conditions, cost price, equipment specs. He was like, these are all empty. Your job's to fill them up. <laughs> I sure had to learn real fast. And, yep. uh, you know, it's 20, 25 years later now. And uh, man, uh, you know, I've forgotten a lot of those technical things, but I could probably relearn them again in a hurry. Yep. I had to. And uh, that experience, setting up a program early on, I was like 22, 23 years old. Um, you know, it was really struck with me. So it really teaches you how to, it really teaches you how to think, you know, the thing mm -hmm. that people find, the thing that sometimes people find when they get out of college and get into their jobs is there's no answer key in the back of the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> no, it's like you figure it out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Who, who do you want to hear from Doug? Are there problems or situations that you want to get involved in if the conditions are right? Or are you comfortable with uh, the board uh, positions that you've got? Oh, um, uh, I'm always interested in in uh, doing new things. I mean, there's multiple mm -hmm. things that I that I care about right now. I do care about um, uh, space traffic management and mm -hmm. and um, and norms in space. Uh, I think that's a critically important thing uh, to do. I, I write on that and speak on that uh, on occasion. Um, I do think that um, figuring out how to go ahead and uh, create the next uh, the next generation of technologies that are going to help us do things on earth um, better than we do today. Uh, for example, forest fire detection is a big thing that I care about right now. And I think space can help in that uh, a lot. Um, and, uh, and then I, I obviously I have a, a soft place in my heart for the national security sector in and trying to guide it. You know, I was, I was one of the big voices in the creation of the uh, space force. I'm ha really happy to see that that occurred. And now I'm trying to make sure we keep it going in the right direction, uh, both from a strategy perspective and a technology perspective. So the, uh, there's a lot of things that interest me. Great, great. Well, yeah. awesome. And uh, folks can connect with you. What's the best way to do that? Through LinkedIn or? Uh... Uh, yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm findable on LinkedIn. There aren't that many Liveros in the world and very few of them have space in their portfolio. Right, right. All right, Doug, <laughs> thanks a lot for doing this. I had a great time. Hope All right, well, thanks, Jason. Well, you will see you and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. 
you're interested in working with us at Cold Star Tech, here are some of the things that we can help with. There's a lot of people who talk about process, documentation control, attention to detail, all this stuff. We help organizations become true learning organizations. Remember, if something isn't written down or recorded in some way that's accessible, searchable, findable, it didn't happen. It might as well not have happened. So if you have two people who solve a problem, a serious problem in your organization, but they do so in isolation and nobody finds out about it, which happens all the time, then it didn't really happen and nobody else can access that wisdom. So we unlock wisdom for your organization. We do a lot of things in the space industry. We have access to regulatory and legal officials who can help you if you're a space industry founder find out what areas of regulation and compliance uh, do you need to be you know, working with, compliant with. And we find a lot of folks don't even know about some of these areas. They don't even know that they exist. Can you imagine how you're gonna stumble and stub your toe and really screw up your organization's timetable if you don't know about these things? So come and talk to us. We've got great relationships with the right people, especially in the United States and in England. And uh, we'll be able to help you with that. And so when it comes to process improvement, whether that's some sort of business documentation, business development roles, wow, have I seen some things in business development. You got founders out there who all they're doing is quoting on projects. This is a mistake. You're wasting your energy bidding on things that most of which you never even had a chance of winning in the first place. Uh, I've seen people bankrupt themselves bidding on everything or bidding on only these uh, high-end things and not realizing that you need to have a strategy so that this bidding process pays for itself. I mean, you gotta learn how to screen here. And this is not something that they teach you in school. I, I had to learn it myself, so don't feel bad about it, but come talk to us about it, okay? Uh, so either it's on the business process side or the actual manufacturing of physical goods that kind of process improvement. You can come talk to us. Can this be done faster, cheaper, better? And yes, most of the time it sure can um, because people just do stuff and the first person to invent the way of doing things uh, is the person who gets to choose most of the time how things are done. This happens all over the place. I like to point out our um, traffic signals for, for automobiles are based on the way that they ran railway traffic 100 years before that, okay? So, and this is key in the space industry right now, which is new, right? This is an area that I personally am interested in. How we figure out how to do stuff today is going to impact generations because people are so easily locked into, this is how we've always done it. And if you hear that at your organization, there's a warning bell. This is how we've always done it. You need to come talk to us at that point, okay? So reach out to us. It's easy to do. Just message me on LinkedIn or email me at jason at coldstartech.com. I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.